The scripture reading is John 13, verses 1 through 20. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. This is the word of God. Thanks, Colleen. There is this incredible moment at the end of the Avengers movie, Endgame, where Iron Man steps in and... I'm not going to ruin the end of it for you. It's probably a little too early for spoilers for that one. How many of you have seen Endgame already? How many of you have not but plan to? Okay, see, I would have ruined your lives right there. I don't want to be the one to spoil it for you. <laughs> but <laughs> some people don't care. Boldly proclaimed from the Quigleys, we don't care about Iron Man. Well, see me afterwards, I'll tell you what happens. <laughs> but we all know it's in the very nature of superheroes to stoop low to the ones who need saving, to lay their life on the line. It doesn't matter if you're into Marvel or into DC, your go-to super, superhero at one point or another is going to risk his or her life for a lesser being. Their love for humanity is what drives them to service of humanity. What we're going to see today in this text makes Iron Man and Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman and Captain Marvel, whatever, it makes their condescension to the people they're saving, it makes it look like child's play. What we see today is absolutely astounding. 
even if many of us are used to this story having heard it for many years. Without this story, we would have far less clear of a picture of what exactly it is that Jesus has done for us and what it is that he expects from us. He shows us that power does not come from self-promotion or from self-preservation, but it comes through service. So we're going to explore the four reasons today why Jesus came with a towel. The four reasons Jesus came with a towel. But let's get our bearings sort of in the setting of the book and where we're at right now. It is, it's supper time for Jesus and his disciples. It has been a long, dusty day. Everyone's weary. Everyone's probably a little bit sweaty. Multiply that by 13 grown men and you've got a recipe for stank in a big way, okay? Everyone is hungry ready to eat. In the back of Jesus' mind, he knows that the end is near. A violent, bloody death looms just ahead, and according to verse 1, if you look at it, Jesus knows it. Like we described a couple of weeks ago, history's biggest not yet is about to turn into now. Jesus, all throughout, and John, all throughout the Gospel of John so far, has, has, have made statements like, my hour is not yet come. It's, it's been said over and over again. Until now, the hour is actually here. Not yet is turning into now. And this has got Jesus feeling so heavy and so grieved. Like the day before you've been headed into a big surgery or a big procedure, you're fearful of the pain. You're fearful of the rehab. You're fearful of the unknown, fearful of potential death perhaps. Jesus was human too. He felt those same sorts of things. So what an ironic mix. Jesus is here in a state of severe weakness and angst about his upcoming violent death. And yet at the same time, he's fully aware that the power of God has been thrust upon him. You see it there in verse 2. All things have been given into his hands. So the question should arise in our minds here. What is Jesus going to do with the reins of power? How is he going to wield this superpower, the power of God? Well, here in John 13, we get this great peek behind the scenes of an incredible moment at the most vulnerable time for the single most powerful man the world has ever seen. It's the God-man, a man who puts Captain America and Iron Man to shame. It's the God-man in a position of vulnerability and weakness. And if you're reading this for the first time, perhaps, today, there's even more intrigue going on in this moment. A very powerful man in the room, the most powerful that the world has ever known, is sitting in the room with a very traitorous man. We learn from the other Gospels that there's another guy in the room, one of Jesus' disciples. His name was Judas. And he has already made a plan with the religious authorities. He's made a deal with them in some dark corner of some dark alley. He's going to sell out Jesus, and it's going to happen on this very night. They've got the plans all worked out. He's agreed to give up Jesus's location. It's kind of like a secret location at this point because Jesus had gone away into hiding from the public eye, and he's going to give up Jesus's location for 30 pieces of silver. So the irony, just, just put yourself there. The irony in the room has got to be so thick. There's Jesus who knows exactly what's going on. He knows exactly what's happening. Then there's Judas, who only knows partly what's going on. He has no idea 
that Jesus knows that he knows. So if this were your first time through the story, you might think that John is setting the stage for some kind of epic showdown between the leader and his traitor. You may expect that Jesus will use this knowledge to trap Judas, to expose him for the fraud that he was. That's, that's the next step that I would suppose would happen in the story. But first things first, these guys have got to eat. So they lounge around the dinner table, this place where Jesus would eat his last morsels of bread and meat, his last taste of wine. Each of these men has their head propped up on their left hand with their feet extended behind them. So the dinner tables of the day would have been like this far off the ground. And so they would lay on the ground, lean on their left hand with their feet behind them, and then they use their right hands to eat. So they're lounging around. It's just Jesus and his guys. The world is shut out. Jesus' public ministry is over, just him and his boys. And he's about to say and do the most provocative thing that you have ever seen a man of his stature do. And then in verse 4, chapter 13, he gets up. And already this is odd. Jesus is getting up in the middle of the meal, and he walks over toward the door. Next to the door is a table or something with, with a basin on it and a pitcher of water. So he unties his outer robe and lays it on the floor. This is weird already, right? The, the guys are kind of cocking their heads and like, Jesus, what, what are you doing, man? We're, we're here eating. What's he doing and why is he doing it now? And so this is clearly an intentional, timed move by Jesus. The timing was just enough out of step for it to draw special attention to what it, whatever it is that he's about to do. Then he picks up a towel and he ties it around his waist. He picks up a pitcher and fills the basin with water. Then he walks to the nearest disciple. He bends down on a knee and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. And in, in this in this culture, this would have been a very backwards thing to do. And if you think about it, this may be the most amazing piece of the whole story, in fact. It'd be one thing if Jesus was kneeling there washing a woman's foot, but he wasn't. He was washing a man's foot. And we all know that men's feet are far more disgusting than women's feet. A dude... <laughs> That's awesome. Um... Besides Steve, don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about, dudes. You know exactly what I'm talking about. But it's here in this moment that we see why Jesus came with a towel. Why did Jesus come with a towel? I forgot to give you a copy, so we can click now. Why did Jesus come with a towel? As a servant to meet real needs. You see this in chapter 13, verse 4. Here we have Jesus stooping low to meet a real need. So you see, when these men arrived at this home, it would have been customary for the host to do the practical, dirty, but actually really critical task of washing the guests' feet, especially right before eating together. Many ancient civilizations embraced this practice of foot washing because sandals were the chief footwear of the time. And so someone, a servant normally, would get a basin and fill it with water and use a towel to wash everyone's feet. But when the disciples arrived to this house, for whatever reason, there wasn't a servant available to do this task. So it's just Jesus and the disciples. So the question, who's going to do it, probably hung in the room like a thick fog. So cue the awkward glances, 
the innocent, you know, the, the supposed innocent stalling, the nervous avoidance of eye contact, the scuffing of the floor. This is the stuff for servants, right? Servants do this. Not the closest friends of the wildly popular teacher named Jesus. So who's it going to be? John? Pete? Matt? Judas? Who is going to do this? In this awkward moment, a most surprising development begins to unfold. Jesus, the creator of every single thing, takes off his outer robe, grabs a basin and a towel, gets down onto his knees, and one by one he carefully washes these disciples' feet. Sometimes we like to think of Jesus as merely the one who came to save. But he wasn't just the man who came to save. He didn't show up on a Thursday just to die the next day on a Friday. He actually came and he lived. He lived before he died. And while he lived, the man in whose pinky was more power than in all the created universe, this man stripped himself and stooped as low as one could to do something even slaves hated to do. The Hebrew culture considered this such a lowly task that not even Jewish slaves, Jewish slaves were forced to do this. The Jewish slaves would force the Gentile slaves to do this kind of act of service. Peers would almost never wash peers' feet, much less a superior washing an inferior's feet. It never happened. It was unthought of. So this was not too low, though, for the one to whom the Father had given all things. Jesus met real needs, dirty, stinky, real needs. He didn't just save, he served. And this is pretty outlandish. It's like the president doing the dishes in the White House, even his staff's dishes. Or the Queen of England scrubbing toilets in Buckingham, even in the servants' quarters. Or like Joel Embiid doing laundry for the Sixers, even the water boys' laundry. Sensational people don't serve. They are the served. But for Jesus, we find him, the sensational Savior, stooping to serve. It's not above him, and it shouldn't be above his followers. When you have all the power, like Jesus did in this moment, you don't have to prove who you are. Jesus knew who he was, and at least in this moment, he didn't feel pressed to prove who he was. He just served. Look, when we know our rightful place in God's family, when we know that and we're certain of it, there's no need to feel angsty about proving our worth or our place by demonstrating our power. There's no need for us to avoid taking on certain tasks, thinking that they're beneath us in order to demonstrate our value. We're sons and daughters of the living God. There is nothing left for us to prove, nothing at all. You can't get better than being a son and daughter of God. So there's nothing for you to prove. In the small, dirty corners of your world, serve with nothing to prove. Well, I I don't know how many of these feet Jesus had washed before he came to Peter. But it had probably been a few. And as Jesus scoots into place in front of Peter... Peter's like, whoa, 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 Jesus. You ain't going to do this to me. No way. Uh Uh-uh. Peter had realized just how out of whack this whole scenario actually was. 
he was, he was not into this. His mouth was the only one big enough, though, to actually admit it out loud. He knew he belonged on his knees at Jesus' feet. But the opposite was happening. It was an upside-down reality. So then there in verse 7, we see that Jesus was doing something more than simple service. There was another layer of meaning behind Jesus' actions. There was something going on that wasn't quite understandable yet. There was some kind of symbolism at play here. Jesus was telling a parable through his actions. He came with a towel to serve, but he also came with a towel as a symbol for what our soul needs. Look there at verse 7. Jesus is kneeling in front of Peter and says, what I am doing to you right now, you may not understand, but afterwards you will understand. So there's something more going on than meets the eye here. It's not hard to understand the concept of cleaning feet. So Jesus is pointing to something uh, like a larger truth here with his actions. So think about this for a moment. Jesus rises up from supper, just like he rose from the Father's right hand. Then he lays aside his garment, just like he temporarily laid aside his glorious existence with the Father in heaven. He grabs a towel, just like he put on human flesh in the form of a servant. He wraps that towel around his waist because he had come not to be served, but to serve. He didn't hand the towel off to one of his boys. He wrapped it around himself and did the work himself. He pours water into the basin to wash the grime off his disciples' feet, just as his blood would wash the sin of our hearts away. He washes their feet like he cleanses our souls. Jesus was doing something deeper with his foot washing. So after Peter tells Jesus that he has no business cleaning his feet, Jesus pushes back. He says, look, Peter, if I don't wash you, you've got no place with me. You're not in the family. You're not in the kingdom. You better let me wash you. Jesus wasn't saying, Peter, if you don't leave this room with clean feet, we're done. This wasn't an intervention for Peter's athlete's foot. Nothing like that. It had little to do with his feet, in fact. He was making a much larger, more important point. He was, in so many words, telling Peter that his soul and his heart needed washing, that his life and his heart was marked by sins against God, marked by lies, marked by lust, marked by ungodly fear, marked by a short temper for Peter. And Jesus was saying that these sins had so stained his soul that he needed a literally miraculous cleansing agent. Peter needed something more than just clean feet. You know, Jesus could have bought a parting gift for his disciples just before he died. He could have gone to Jerusalem's nearest bed, bath, and beyond and bought the best, most plush towels they had to offer and said, go for it. Wash your feet, and while you're at it, wash mine. But he didn't do that. He didn't say, do this yourself, guys. You might expect him to do that. Wash your feet. He said, unless I wash you, you have no place with me. There is one person who can do the washing that Jesus is talking about. So here's the miraculous cleansing agent that Peter and that all of us need in this moment. Jesus came with his towel to serve as a symbol to save, and next, as a substitute for your towel. As a substitute for your towel. He said this to Peter because there was simply no way for Peter to clean himself up. 
There isn't a rag in the world that is abrasive enough to clean the dirt off your skin and the grime off your soul. There isn't one that can do both of those things. None of us can clean that deep. And we can't just add some soap of good stuff into our bad stuff and hope and pray that this just, that just does away with all of the bad stuff. We can never undo the bad things that we have done. It is impossible. We cannot make the dirt of our sin disappear. It's a real problem for us. So if God demands perfection from us, and I hate to break it to you, he demands perfection from you and from me. He says, be holy, for I am holy. If he demands that of us, then he's going to have to do it for us, else we are hopeless and helpless to do what he's called us to do. What can wash away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The cleansing Jesus is talking about here requires an act of God. So Jesus said, I got to do this. Let me do the cleansing. Let me do it for you. So Jesus raps with Peter, and he moves on down the line. And can you imagine for a moment, just put yourself in that room, imagine the irony in that moment when Judas' stinky feet were in Jesus' perfect pre-scarred hands. What must that have been like? What thoughts must have been rolling through Jesus' mind? What about Judas? Who knows? He's just like an hour or two away from selling this guy out, from putting him up on a cross. Jesus' eyes and actions were pleading with Judas. Believe and find life. Believe and be saved. Believe and be clean. Judas rejects. Which of us here today needs to be cleaned by Jesus? All of us. Every single one of us needs to be cleansed by Jesus. Can I implore you this morning, like I would implore Judas if I was sitting there with him in that room that day, set aside your pride. Set aside your self-sufficiency. Set aside your drive to get ahead in the world. Set aside your greed. You can't clean yourself today. Instinctively, we all know this, whether or not we like to admit it to ourselves. We know that we've done wrong. Maybe you're not as bad as you could be, but you're probably not as good as you should be. Me neither. But Jesus will cleanse you, not only from the wrong that you've done, but also from all the right that you haven't done. Won't you come today to be cleaned by Jesus? And now listen, here's the really crazy, amazing news for all of us in here today. None of us have to pretend that we actually are clean. There is no point in pretending that you're clean on your own. There have been many people who have come through these doors before, and I know this because I've heard them say it. They don't return because they just don't like about the fact that we talk about how bad we are. We try to be honest with our plight that we have fallen short of God's glory, that none of us do what we actually should do, how far short we fall in being what we should be. And I partly get their instinct. I'm not really wanting to hear this kind of news. I understand that. No one wants to be told that. But how, how cruel would it be for the doctor to tell you that you have cancer, even though you didn't have cancer? And that would be a cruel trick. But if you did, wouldn't you want to know that you had cancer so that you could do something about it? So that that foreign substance inside your body could be cleaned out. 
that you could make a plan to address the problem. Well, Jesus right here is telling us that there is a problem, there's dirt. And he's telling us there's a solution. He can clean it. So there's no point in pretending you're not, your soul isn't dirty today. Even if you're already following Jesus and have been for a long time, there's no point in pretending that you're all put together, that you've got this down. You're not clean, I'm not either. We are all projects of grace. I hope you'll find this incredibly freeing for your soul. It's so freeing to just acknowledge. I fall short of the glory of God, and I need help. No more pretending. There's an outlandish freedom afforded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel frees us to continually explore and revel in this fact. This is what someone has said. They said, I am more broken and sinful than I ever dared hope. Think about that for a second. You are more broken and sinful than you ever dared believe, not hope. You are more broken and sinful than you ever dared believe. But in Jesus, you are more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope. More broken and sinful than you dare believe. More loved and accepted than you ever dared hope. If you have been rescued by the gospel, you no longer need to fight and scrape and claw for worth in this world or from each other. We need not leave the particularly low acts of service to other people. We need not find our worth in what we own and how much we make or how well liked we are. Our social media posts can get zero likes and zero comments and we're still okay because we are valued by God himself through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. We've been cleaned up, not by us, but by Jesus. You ever had a kid come up to you and breathe their freshly brushed teeth breath into your mouth and into your nose? I have. And I've had this happen for kids whom I have brushed their teeth, right? I brush their teeth and they want to come to me and brag about how minty fresh their breath smells. They're proud of it. But Trinity, this can be our story too. God can make you clean and you can boast, not in what you have done, but in what Christ has done on your behalf. You can be clean and you can boast in Christ. Every single human being ever, every human ever has wanted at least two things, to be fully known and at the same time, to be fully loved. We all want this. We want to be fully known and fully loved. And the gospel of Jesus declares that simultaneously, both of these things can be true. Now, usually, if you think about it in your experience, usually one or the other is true for you in your relationships. We're either loved because no one really knows us. They don't know how messed up we actually are. So we're loved but not known. Or... We think that because we are actually known, we can't possibly be loved. Because if someone knew how jacked up my heart is, how broken and rotten and perverse it actually is, no one would love me if they actually knew that about me. If you really knew me, you wouldn't love me. But God both knows us and he loves us at the same time. That is a combo platter of pure, undeserved joy right there, Trinity. And it's all because of Jesus. He makes this truth possible by coming with the single most effective towel that history has ever known. The kind of towel that doesn't just clean dirty feet, but dirty hearts. 
Jesus came with the towel as a servant, as a symbol, as a substitute, and then finally today, as the standard for what we should all aspire to, as a standard. So Jesus' actions here, they're not just symbolic, they're actually an example for us to follow, to live out his example here. Look there at verse 15. Jesus says, I did all of this as an example. Jesus is setting the standard in these moments for what our lives are to be lived for. He set the bar high as being the highest, he set the bar high as being the highest being, doing the lowliest work. If the highest being can do the lowliest work, shouldn't we too be able to humbly engage in acts of service that may at first seem beneath us? Wouldn't that be such a counter-cultural picture to our world? Jesus says that's how the world is going to know that we follow him, is by how evident our love is for one another. The world is going to know how thoroughly we love Jesus by looking at how dirty our towels are. So how dirty is your towel this morning? Have you followed Christ's example? When the diaper isn't just pee, if you know what I mean. Who's the first to jump up? When a fellow Trinity Kids worker needs a sub, how long do you wait? Fingers crossed, hoping someone else volunteers. When a coworker needs your help on the weekend, how many made-up excuses are you making to get out of helping them? When the dog pukes, who acts like they didn't see it and runs into the other room, hoping someone else notices and takes care of the problem? These are all things I must admit I have done and done recently. If we are to count ourselves as followers of Christ, our lives must be marked by humble service. We must be a people who follow the man with the dirtiest towel. We too must be a people of the towel. Jesus is helpfully, I think, here toward the end of our text, narrows down the initial scope of our service. You can see it there in verse 14. He says, do this for one another. He's telling his disciples, his followers, do this to and for one another. I don't think there's any evidence that what Jesus is imploring us to do uh, is instituting mandatory, mandatory foot-washing ceremonies here. If he was, I think we'd see more evidence of that throughout the New Testament, urging us uh, toward this. But I think what he's doing here is urging us toward the sacrificial spirit behind this kind of act. So if you're wondering where to start, how do I and where do I start getting my towel dirty? This is it right here. These are your people to get your towels dirty with. Start right here. Start with one another, like Jesus said. Start with the people that you're in covenant with. Start with your faith family. Look for needs. Fill them. You don't have to tell anyone that you're filling them. Just fill them. Just do it. And now, there's a really cool catch here at the end of our text today. Look at verse 17. Jesus challenges what, what all of our instincts will be when we leave here, I think. I think, I think our instincts tell us that this is going to cost us more than we want to pay. Maybe we'll leave a little bit pricked in our spirit, maybe encouraged to do a little bit more than we have been for others' sake and for God's glory, but our consciences probably maybe haven't been so pricked that it's going to change our everyday. It might just help us get a dirtier towel on a Sunday, but this is for our everyday. Jesus says in verse 17, blessed are you. 
happy are you, and this next phrase is the killer right here, if you do them. There's got to be follow-through for joy here, the, the joy that Jesus promises. There's a promise of blessing. There's a promise of, of happiness. The word blessed means happy. We should be totally intrigued here about the happiness that Jesus is, is, is teasing out here. We should be totally compelled by God's blessing when it's promised as it is here. The life of service is a happy life. See, we think that going out of our way brings pain, and so we try to avoid this pain. So we stay seated when we should stand up. We ignore the need. We divert our gaze and act like we don't see the need because we think the payoff won't be worth the effort. But Jesus spins a different tale here. He rejects that notion. He says, happy are those who stoop low. Blessed are the owners of the dirtiest towels. As followers of Jesus, we have a high calling to happy, lowly service. There's nothing too low for the Christian because there was nothing too low for the Christ. Nothing too low for the Christian because there was nothing too low for the Christ. So take up the behavior of your self-sacrificing superhero. There is none greater than Jesus Christ. There's no greater leader with a dirtier towel. Let's take ours up now and serve those in our life's path. This is exactly our vision here at Trinity that we talked about a few minutes ago, to see every single member living in the renewing power of the gospel so that the whole world sees our upside-down way of living, where power bows low. Power bows low to serve. Where the world sees this and they say, yes, that's what I want. I want power that serves. I want Jesus because I see Jesus in you. So Trinity, let's go low. In Christ, we have been given a high standing in order, a high standing in Christ in order to pursue lowly service. A high standing to pursue lowly service. Pastors, go low. Daddies, go low. As you walk in the door this week from work, take a deep breath, and in that breath, pray before you open that front door. Ask God to help you stoop low rather than prop your feet up. C-group leaders, go low. Employees, go low. Managers, owners, supervisors, go low. Single friends, go low. Kids, go low with your brothers and sisters and moms and dads. Christian, go low to represent Jesus. Go low to know his joy. Happy are you if you do them. Go low to show his value, not prove yours. Thank God Jesus is our servant. He's our savior. He's our substitute and he is the standard of service we should all shoot for. Will you pray with me? Lord, thanks so much for this startling picture of what you have come to do in our place. It's a staggering thought to think that the creator of the universe got on his knees and washed feet like mine. And by your cross, you have washed a heart like mine that is desperately sinful, dirty, 
broken. Thank you for shedding your blood so that my heart could be clean. Thank you for shedding your blood so that many of us in here could have clean hearts. I pray that you would help us follow your example, follow the standard that you have set. In Jesus' name, amen.